The whole world is the poorer by the loss of his many-sided genius, while the survival of this country and the sister nations of the Commonwealth, in the face of the greatest danger that has ever threatened them, will be a perpetual memorial of his leadership, his vision, and indomitable courage. Queen Elizabeth II. He was a man who was voted the greatest Britain in 2002, a cunning leader whose genius saved the United Kingdom and the rest of the world from falling to the hands of Adolf Hitler. He considered himself to be, quote, a man of destiny, which caused him to be reckless and lack restraint. He was a true imperialist and a terrible racist, once describing the Indian people as a beastly people with a beastly religion. Despite his flaws, which no doubt must be taken into consideration, Winston Churchill was the right man for the job in 1940. 77 years later, Joe Wright set out to make a film that might not have been the most accurate, but it captured the spirit of Britain at the time of such peril. This is 2017's Darkest Hour. You're listening to Film Survey with J.G. Murphy. I am your host, J.G. Every week, we explore the history and themes of some of the greatest films in cinema history. But instead of randomly picking films week in and week out, we look at a certain theme and multiple films that are linked by that theme, sort of like a college course. Our current season is entitled, We Shall Never Surrender, England's History on the Silver Screen. This show is part of the TMK Pictures family of podcasts. For more content, please visit our website, www.tmkpictures.com, and our YouTube channel. Just look for The Green Clover. Here we are, halfway through our second season, and we're challenged with our most difficult figure yet, Winston Churchill. As noted in the opening, Churchill was a genius and a fighter. He was also extremely prejudiced and racist, making one scene in particular of today's film troubling. My word of 2020 has become context. We cannot judge actions simply by looking through our modern lens. We have to understand why the things that happen happened. We have to look at all the factors. While it hardly ever makes poor actions seem right, it gives us understanding as to why those poor actions took place. This is how we learn and make improvements. As they say, if we fail to learn from our history, we are doomed to repeat it. Too often, we are quick to dismiss and say an action or a person is wrong. But why are they wrong? You may think it's a frivolous question, but it serves a purpose no matter what the situation is. You have to understand what caused the man to commit the crime. Now, I realize that I'm saying all of this from a place of privilege. My experience as a straight white male can never lead me to truly understand what it is like to face injustice based on the color of your skin or what gender you are. Because of this, it is my duty to understand and listen to those who have to deal with racism, sexism, or any sort of inequality day in and day out. People of privilege must follow their lead and help in any way asked. Winston Churchill was a flawed man, yes. And we can and should have those discussions. 
but we must also realize that he might have been the only person in British Parliament who was fit for the job of defending the island. Of course, it creates a sticky situation. Do we honor him or not? It's the entire quagmire of Western civilization. They are difficult conversations to have, but they need to be had in order for us to progress as a global society. So, before we get into Darkest Hour, let's look into the life of Winston Churchill. Sir Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill was born on November 30th, 1874, in Oxfordshire, a direct descendant of Duke Marlborough his family was among the highest levels of the British aristocracy. His father wanted Winston to have a career in the military, so he attended the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst. Following his completion, Churchill spent five years in various parts of the world, including Cuba, India, and Sudan. At age 25, Churchill was elected to become a member of parliament for the Conservative Party. Claiming he was a liberal in all but name, he continually supported the Liberal Party's platform. This caused the Conservative Party to inform Churchill that they would not support his re-election. In turn, he crossed the floor and defected from the Conservatives. When Harry Campbell Bannerman took up the office of Prime Minister, Churchill was installed as the Under Secretary of State for the Colonial Office. He then became the youngest cabinet member since 1866 when he served as H.H. H. Asquith's president of the Board of Trade. He was 33 years old. I could go on and on about Churchill's career before World War II, but it would honestly take all day. There is plenty of literature on his life, and I encourage you to read up on his early life. Let's skip to the lead-up of World War II. Churchill was one of the first to recognize the dangers of Adolf Hitler's ascension in January of 1933 and was quick to express alarm over the government's reduced air force. And of course, in 1936, Churchill was in the middle of the abdication crisis when Edward VIII gave up the throne for Wallace Simpson. Now, in the King's speech, they portrayed Churchill as being supportive of George VI. He actually supported Edward and clashed with Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin. However, he'd later pledge loyalty to George. When Neville Chamberlain replaced Baldwin in May of 1937, Churchill welcomed his appointment. That changed, however, in 1938, when Chamberlain appeased to Mussolini, something he intended to do for Hitler. Churchill was strongly against appeasement. Following the annexation of Austria, Churchill called for a mutual defense pact among threatened European states, arguing that Hitler must be stopped. However, Many in Parliament did not want to get into yet another war, and Chamberlain signed the Munich Agreement on September 30th. The Labour Party refused to serve under Chamberlain's leadership any further on May 10th, 1940, though they would accept a new Conservative leader. The choice came down to either Churchill, now the First Lord of the Admiralty, or Foreign Secretary Lord Halifax. Halifax admitted he could not govern effectively as a member of the House of Lords, so, the king sent for Churchill to become the new prime minister. His first test would become his defining legacy as a wartime leader. The entire British army was trapped at the beach of Dunkirk, 
and needed to find a way home. Now, we know what happened in Dunkirk, but what happened in the government? Well, Churchill formed the War Ministry to figure out what to do. The members would be Chamberlain as Lord President of the Council, Clement Attlee as Lord Privy Seal, Halifax as Foreign Secretary, and Arthur Greenwood as a Minister Without Portfolio. Churchill would later install himself as the Minister of Defense, making him the most powerful wartime PM in British history. Halifax felt the government should explore a negotiated peace settlement with Hitler, as it seemed the fall of France and the total defeat of the British army were imminent. Churchill fully intended to fight on, and was met with staunch criticism until Chamberlain ultimately supported him. Ultimately, Churchill's rhetoric and oratory skills were what won over and inspired the British people to prepare for a long and difficult war. With quotes like, blood, toil, tears, and sweat, victory, victory at all costs, and his famous, we shall fight on the beaches speech, Churchill became the guiding light for the people of Britain during the dark days. Operation Dynamo was successful, and when the United States entered the arena, Churchill and President Franklin D. Roosevelt formed a powerful duo. Despite his triumphs during the war, Churchill mishandled his election campaign by claiming a labor government would require, quote, some form of Gestapo to enforce its agenda. Churchill lost the election to Clement Attlee. The man who led the country through war was not seen fit to lead the country to a newfound peace. He would continue to be the leader of the opposition and ascend to the prime ministry again in 1951. However, due to health concerns, he retired from office in 1955. On January 24, 1965, Churchill passed away after suffering a final stroke on January 12th. He was the first non-royal to receive a state funeral since W.E. Gladstone in 1898. Our story continues in a moment. And now, back to the show. Unlike the King's Speech, which is an intimate costume drama, Darkest Hour is told on a much grander scale. It's almost Shakespearean the way it's told. It focuses on the themes of freedom and persistence. Throughout the film, he refuses to tell the British people that they are losing the war. In one particular speech, he even tells the people that they are advancing on the Germans, no matter what parliament or the king thinks. This is a dangerous play for him, and though at first he seems to completely believe in what he is doing, Joe Wright is able to depict ways that portray Churchill's psyche. Every time Churchill is put into a corner, Wright manifests it physically by shooting him through door windows or showing the outlines of the small water closet he is sitting in. This puts Churchill quite literally in a box, which then leads him to fight his way out. It's his stubborn persistence that pushes him to keep on the fight. It's easy to capitulate. It's much harder to fight. This is a man who chooses to take the harder course each and every time. Those around him are not so sure and want peace talks. In fact, Churchill is posed with the question, quote, what is the end if not the destruction of all things? Churchill and his opponents all want the same thing, 
for the people of Britain to be safe. But their methods obviously differ drastically. The opposition within his own party want to settle for peace talks. They continue to bring up the idea and try to get Churchill on the record as saying he refuses to support peace talks as a way to force a vote of no confidence. Churchill is ahead of their thinking. He knows this is a game of chess, and he's one of the better players. This might be one of the most truthful aspects of the film. Churchill was a genius, but his rivals continually tried to outsmart him. At the height of his powers, that's an ill-advised move. Even when he is pinned back and seems ready to give up and engage in peace talks, something stirs in him that just won't quit. In a scene where he is dictating a speech on exploring peace talks, he cannot come up with the words. Instead, his eyes wander to a newspaper that has a front-page article on Hitler. Churchill gets angry, enraged. Losing is not in his nature, and he will not go down without a fight. This leads us to one of the more memorable scenes of the film. Churchill rides the Underground Railroad. He takes his own advice that he gave George VI and goes amongst the people to get a sense of how they're feeling. Not a single one of them wants to stop fighting. Every single passenger would rather be blown to smithereens than be subjugated under German law. They share his sentiment that he bellows earlier in the film, quote, you cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. Churchill is dealing with a parliament that doesn't want to engage in another long war. They think that if they just give Hitler what he wants, he'll go away. What they fail to understand is that Hitler wants it all. He wants all of Europe, and that cannot be good for Britain, no matter what kind of agreement they come to. This is where Churchill, emboldened by the people he has sworn to protect, is able to create his masterpiece. He is quickly able to concoct the words he must say to rouse Parliament to his support. With the help of his assistant, Elizabeth Layton, he writes his most famous speech and wins over Chamberlain and the rest of Parliament. Now, this film takes great, and I mean great, creative license when telling the story. But does it matter? It is a movie, after all. Biopics and historical films should never be taken as fact. And that's what's so interesting about this versus Dunkirk. The latter is extremely detailed, and Christopher Nolan makes sure that everything is mostly the way it was at the actual evacuation. But here, Joe Wright is more concerned about telling a story that rouses feelings of nationalism and pride. There are the small things, such as the fact that Elizabeth Layton didn't actually start working for Churchill until 1941, and the fact that Churchill did not give his We Shall Fight in the Beaches speech in front of Parliament. Then there's the most glaring, the railway scene. No, that never happened. Churchill would have been absolutely insane to do such a thing without any form of security. The scene still works, as it gets the point across that a large portion of the country was against peace talks. However, I do take great issue with one aspect of the scene. The lone black man on the train, 
whom Churchill seems to have no issue whatsoever that he is talking to him. This is my one criticism of the film, as it is a pretty glaring form of revisionist history. Like I said earlier, context is key, but this is, frankly, appalling. Churchill was a terrible racist, and to posit anything to the contrary is not acceptable. I do believe there is a space to praise the triumphs and the good, but also criticize the bad when it comes to key historical figures. Everyone had dirty laundry, and we must give as equal, if not more importance, to that than everything else. Gary Oldman gives a powerhouse performance as Churchill, to the point where I often forget that it was Oldman. Yes, the makeup certainly helps, but he got his voice, posture, and mannerisms down to a T. It's easy to see why he won the Academy Award for Best Actor. Lily James, Ben Mendelsohn, Kristen Scott Thomas, and Stephen Delane round out a robust supporting cast who all give solid performances. James is turning into a star, and I always look forward to every performance of hers. I'm a big fan of the dramatic lighting displayed in the film. It reminded me of something out of the silent era, where the lighting made the story seem larger than life. I know we're in a period of realism in cinema, but I am always one to say that film is first and foremost an art form, and I appreciate those who treat it as such. Next week, we will continue our exploration of English history through film by exploring the first of two David Lean films, The Bridge on the River Kwai. Thank you for stopping by on this week's episode of Film Survey. This show is researched, written, and hosted by myself, J.G. Murphy, and is part of the TMK Pictures family of podcasts. If you would like to view a transcript of this episode, it will be available on thefilmsurveypodcast.com. If you would like to share your thoughts with me on the film, make sure to follow at Film Survey Podcast on Instagram, or you can shoot me a message at the JG Murphy on Twitter. You can also email me directly at jgmurphy at tmkpictures.com. It is possible I may share your thoughts with the rest of the community. I host another podcast, Obscurities of the Silver Screen, with my dear friend and colleague, Remy Gray. Episodes are available on Anchor or wherever you get your podcasts. Please be sure to check out more of TMK's content, including Space Stuff, Look Ma No Helmet, and Inner Idiot Child. All shows are free to watch on TMK's YouTube channel. Just look for The Green Clover. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to next week's discussion. <laughs> <laughs>